And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, City rocking the 80s indie vibe with the Jesus and Maris. United with the biggest Palace non-performance since Andrew's sweat plans. It all screams vintage Derby fun this weekend. We look ahead to the big game in Manchester this Sunday and round up the other midweek action. We discuss shirt colours, seagull droppings and they're up to no good. Man City's beef with the boffins. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hurrah! Well done, everyone. It's the 4th of March. Thank you for being here. Big shout-out to Mike Mordew, if I'm pronouncing that right, for the Jesus Morris line. Nice. And thanks to you, just, you know, for being here with your ears. The most essential bit of all. Uh, with us today on Totally, we've got Lindsay Hooper off the telly. Hello, Lindsay. Hello, James. Uh, Carl Anker of The Athletic is with us. Hi, Carl. Ahoy, hoy. And Duncan, Ale- and Duncan Alexander of Top Number Botherers Opta. Hello, James. Hello, Duncan. Uh, all three of you have something in common this week. Man City as an opponent. Wolves on Tuesday, Man United <laughs> this Sunday, and Opta. Well, Duncan. <laughs> yeah. It's been overblown. Really? Slightly. Well, I don't think City are that worried. I think a few uh, Man City-associated people... Um, who maybe over-celebrated the fake run of wins um, before and now have wasted their joy. So uh, this is a dispute over when Pep won his 200th game with Manchester City. Uh, You guys don't count penalty shootouts as wins. Michael Cox very much in your camp. City called a crisis meeting with you and pointed out, I think I'm right in saying, that since penalty shootouts certainly do count in World Cups because loads of teams have won trophies off the back of them. Uh, Opta should change their parameters. Uh, Opta was unmoved. Well, it's not our parameters. It's, you know, if you look at the rules of the game or the laws of the game, if we're being accurate, um, you know, penalty shootout is a device to settle a match that's drawn, but where you need a winner, you know, of the tie. Um, So if a World Cup final is drawn, the game ends as a draw, but we need a team that won the World Cup. So you have a penalty shootout. In, you know, in the olden days, it would have been a coin toss or, right. you know, who can spot a pigeon in the distance? You know, would that count as a win? I don't think so. So, you know, penalty shootouts are a way to end drawn matches. That's, you know, that's the end of it, pretty much. Right. You've um, caused chaos in every pub quiz. <laughs> not mm. really, because I honestly think most people agree that wouldn't count a penalty shootout win I, as a win. I don't think most people would agree with that, Duncan, but that's not your job to be agreed with, is it? I noticed well, that you also disagree with City over their current run of consecutive wins. This was a couple of weeks ago. What was the meeting like? Was Pep involved? Did he turn up? <laughs> no, I honestly don't know about this meeting. I don't know who was involved. I'm sure it's been overstated, to be honest. It was probably above your pay grade to be 
Yeah, I mean, I'm just, you know, mashing a keypad while, uh, you know, decision makers decide. But, you know, it's the, the point is that their current yeah. run of 21 yeah. wins in a row is very impressive. And, you know, that should be celebrated rather than dredging up this sort of, you know, turgid discussion. Mm. Well, they've got to find something to do between now and the end of the season, of course, True. Man City. Mm. Lindsay, do you count uh, penalty shootouts, by the way, as a, a win or not? I think I would have done, yeah. Yeah, I think I would. right. And Carl, you would? Yeah. Right. But according to Duncan, no one does. No. The pigeon spotting sounds exciting, actually, Duncan. I don't know if that's something that you want to work They should up. bring that back. They definitely should bring that back. But, you know, the, the bookmakers pay out on a draw that ends in a penalty shootout as a win. They don't, so... But you know. you're not a bookmaker, are you? Not as far as I know, no, but... Um, <laughs> Fuck, you know, it's logical. Just embrace logic is my, <laughs> is my new stance. Okay. My argument would be when you look at the, the W's and L's and D's in the form, it would have a W there for a win, wouldn't it? No, it would have a draw. So here's the thing. Right? Sorry, just to keep That's going on. That's actually true. Yep. So you can I'm not have... Sure it no, 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 it would. You... For example, if you go to, I don't know, top stats-based site, a soccer base, they mm. record uh, penalty shootouts as draws. Yeah, okay. and also you can have a situation where a team can uh, lose a game, a two-legged match, mm. but overall it's drawn, it has to go to penalty shootout, and they win the penalty shootout. So they've lost the match, and they've won the penalty shootout. So what do you do in that situation? The penalty okay. shootout isn't part of the game. Okay. Maybe I, I'm one that can be persuaded, maybe. Mm. Um, it didn't take a penalty shootout this Tuesday for Man City as they raced to a 4-1 victory over Wolves with a series of late goals from Cabral Jesus and Mares. 21 straight wins now for Manchester City. Their rivals this weekend, Man United, responding in kind with a remarkable third straight 0-0 draw uh, amid the fog at Selhurst Park. United remains second in the Premier League, a point clear of Leicester, who had a 1-1 draw at battling Burnley. Elsewhere, Everton moved to just two points off the top four with a 1-0 win over Saints. That's now eight defeats in nine for Hasenhutl's side. They are seven points from the drop. While also midweek, bottom of the table, Blades beat Villa 1-0 to finally move clear of Derby's all-time worst Premier League points tally ever. Three games coming up Thursday evening, Fulham Spurs, West Brom Everton and Liverpool Chelsea. So Everton could be in the top four by the time you hear this. Uh, on the way, we've got a huge weekend full of loads of interesting storylines. And yet, as if hypnotised, we're going to start with the goal-destroying prospect at the Etihad. What do you think about that, Carl? It's not going to end nil-nil. All right. I, th I think I think Manchester United are, are going to work the uh, inevitable kinks out of their system. So it's, really? it's three nil-nil draws in a row for United now. They haven't scored in four hours in all competitions. And uh, Bruno Fernandes is beginning to look a little leggy, which... He does, yeah. Which is mildly concerning. Uh, I, I just, if he is the sun around all of the uh, attacking entities' orbit, if the sun is beginning to dim mm. and the entire wider universe is beginning to look tired, and I, I, have, I think I've just worked myself into a corner where I'm saying City are about to score <laughs> loads of goals. Yeah. Um, no, no, that won't happen. Uh, the fact that it's away from home at the Etihad... Uh, and I'm hoping and relying on Pep Guardiola to get into one of those funks where he's basically Goliath who turns up to a party wearing a jaunty hat. Uh, and he's like, here's the weak spot. Um, yeah, there'll, there'll be goals in this game. Uh, I think right. from both Duncan's, sides. 
Duncan's wearing a jaunty hat at the moment, listener. Mm. Uh, I'm only sorry that you can't see it. Uh, already this season, these two teams have treated us to a 2-0 victory for City in the League Cup. And a few weeks before that, possibly the dullest derby stalemate ever in Manchester, that 0-0 uh, between them at Old Trafford. A match that featured just four shots on target from these uh, from the assembled collections of superstars. Well, that, that time, if I recall, United did their usual thing of sitting deep and looking to hit on the break. So Pep went, I'm not going to wear a funny hat. I'm going to do the same as United. And, and we all sat and marvelled. <laughs> but surely with, with City 14 points clear now, this time he's just going to say, screw it and go for it. You'd think so. I... Did check the numbers recently, and Duncan, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Manchester City are the only team to have won four league games in a row this season, which is that sort of, this season is what a lot of people pretended last season was. Everyone now has reached that level of physical and mental fatigue. And I think what's happened to a number of teams apart from Manchester City is, well, Solskjaer managed to get United to top of the league in January because he was able to steer into the skid of the Christmas fixture list. Um, and that looked good, but what, the problem with the season is this season is just a series of ever increasing and more bizarre skids, and I don't know how he's managed. I don't know if he knows how to steer into this pogbalist one now. Um, don't. Uh, just to point out that the only other team to win four in a row are West Ham, who've got this bright young manager that maybe United should have a look at. <laughs> <laughs> I think when you're watching Manchester City lately, and you can take a straw poll of the whole Premier League, I think, and you can apply this to them. They are the only team that are gambling on getting forward. So although Manchester United have got that attacking prowess and they've got the players, they're not gambling. So when those balls are going in, and like you say, I think if Bruno Fernandes is still fatigued and decides that he's not as up for this one as he would have been six weeks ago, then without McTominay as well, I don't know whether Pogba might be back because he could inject something, but there's no other team doing that in the league right now. So I think Pep will probably be rubbing his hands together for this. I think there will be goals and I think they'll be going to Man City. So uh, Tuesday night, City were in action against Wolves. To what extent did that offer any kind of guide to what they're like playing a team that's very, very deep in their own half? I think you forget the first half. <laughs> I don't think right. Manchester United would, would allow that to happen. Really? So that was pretty extraordinary, no? I mean, have you ever seen... They'd been talking about trialling spectators back at Premier League games. They certainly <laughs> had 11 dressed in old gold in that first half. Uh, this is absolutely the tactic that Wolves should have deployed to a degree. I think I think they ended up sitting back so far that they, they very rarely moved out of their own half, did they, for that first half in particular. And hardly any shots. And the, the problem with Wolves at the moment is the counter-attack isn't there like it used to be. But... I think that the problem with Wolves is that they've done this against other teams like Southampton in the FA Cup. They did that very recently where you're not expecting them to do it against Newcastle as well, which are teams that they should be taking the game to more. But against City, I, I forgive it a little bit more. All right. But I wouldn't, as a Manchester United fan, be watching that display and thinking, oh, if we sit deep like this, is, is this what's going to happen? I, I think Wolves particularly are, are vulnerable and brittle in defence right now. Right. Shout out, although you can't do it because I think you've reached your limit for uh, talking about Wolves now. We can't talk about Wolves anymore. Um, Ziggy played guitar, got in touch, uh, a big Everton fan. I don't know what his actual name is. Maybe it is Ziggy. Um, but he is going to make a donation to a charity of my choice. Right. If I don't mention Wolves. Um, do, do and I said I can I... only answer the questions you give me, but... 
Yeah, I think you should just talk about wolves all you want. Ziggy, if you care that much, give the money to charity. <laughs> let's make the whole next part about wolves. Uh, but let's just have a quick shout here uh, for Connor Cody, who actually gave City a bit of a scare in the game, no? Heading, uh, what, he's the only shot he's had all season, is that right? It's his first ever shot on target in the Premier League, and he scored wow. with it. It was Wolves' first touch in the box that game. Um, so at that at that point when it went to one one, City had absolutely dominated, um, and Wolves had you know fortunately equalised. But we don't have any way of telling that with numbers. Um, all we have is goals, so it was just one <laughs> one. But then City scored three late on. So uh, yeah, but it should point out that. Heading into the derby, City haven't trailed. They equaled a Premier League record in this game by um, it was their nineteenth game in a row without trailing, um, which equaled Arsenal's record from ninety eight ninety nine. So obviously they can break that against United at the weekend. They've actually mm. trailed for one hundred and seventy three minutes this season, which is one minute less apparently than the new James Bond film is going to be. So, if you're Man United, you're surely worried as well that City made six changes for that one. They can afford to do it. Mm. Indeed. It is a derby, so, you know, the form book generally gets defenestrated. But when you look at how Wednesday saw United playing at, at Palace, uh, the most disappointing, Carl, of the three consecutive nil-nil draws, David Hartrick writing, imagine if there had been no fog and we'd seen more of that game. <laughs> it was a uh, particularly <laughs> dull nil-nil Manchester United had 16 attempts on goal, but only one shot on target. Um, there was a moment apparently where Rashford and Harry Maguire had a very uh, profane back and forth where uh, Rashford asked Maguire, what on earth do you want me to do? And Maguire apparently said words to the effect of get onside, um, which is this thing of United very often play down to the level of their opponent if the opponent's in the bottom half. They tend to lose what you'd expect, the sort of basic shape. Um, what's quite interesting in recent press conferences when I've been talking to Oligon Solskjaer is I'm saying, you know, how do you go about making sure you have good performances from week to week? And Solskjaer said he's aware that there's always some sort of space on the pitch and United constantly go into these games looking to find the space to which they can score. Um, now, that's a... Interesting response if you're the manager of a team like Crystal Palace. But when you're playing Crystal Palace, you should know that the space is going to be in front of the back four and they don't want you to get in behind. So Manchester United, your challenge should be not looking for the space. It should be forcing it and going, right, we're going to stretch your back four, we're going to draw them out of position, and then we're going to go and play in the positions that you don't want us to put the ball. And Manchester United don't seem to know how to force the issue of space, uh, which... I think that's going to be the main difference between them being possible Premier League winners um, to what they are now, which is mostly one of the better teams in the Champions League contending space. Man United are, they've got the skeleton of something good there and they can get better either through coaching and work on their shape on and off the ball. But I don't, I'm not sure how much time they've got on the training pitch right now, much like every single Premier League team. And they can also get better through the transfer market. And the fact that the majority of United discussion tends to be, who, let's get Haaland, ooh, let's get Sancho, uh, leads me to believe um, Manchester United are going to try and solve this issue through money rather than uh, whiteboards. Mm. Well done, Crystal Palace, by the way, who've taken four points off 
the Red Devils this season and probably came closer to actually taking three points in this game. No, that Patrick van Arnholt uh, chance that was uh, the forced the, a cracking save from Dean Henderson, who was in, in for David De Gea. Hmm. Palace this year, 2021, the year fans, um, have a lower XG as a team than Mikhail Antonio has by himself. So to back up Carl's point, United probably should have had a bit of a go. And they definitely do when they don't have Wilfred Zahar. I mean, this mm-hmm. stat that follows them around when he doesn't play and how little they create, they've lost 18 of the last 23 games that he's not been involved with. They've only scored two, haven't they, in the last five matches that he's not not been a part of. So I think he's still a huge cog in the Crystal Palace wheel, but they have looked a lot tighter defensively. And um, I've seen... Gary Cahill throwing his body on the line a few times in recent matches. Uh, Roy Hodgson said to me after the match against Fulham, actually, that a player 10 years younger couldn't do any better. Yeah, it occurred to me watching the game, actually, that maybe United... Well, my first thought was United are playing like they still think it's two points for a win. So, you know, draw your away games and win your hangers. <laughs> and then it occurred to me that maybe in a pandemic that should be the case because home advantage has been whittled away so maybe mm. every time there's a pandemic it auto changes to two points for a win either that or we go with the the pigeon spotting routine uh, <laughs> yeah. Carl, your point about bruno fernandez looking leggy chewy for example writing and saying is united's reliance on bruno fernandez to win us literally every single match going to be the major downfall this season what can they do about that i mean would you rest him? And if if so, how would you line them up for, for example, this weekend's game? I think the difficult thing is the the opportunity to rest Bruno Fernandes has probably passed. So they had, Manchester United had that essentially a dead rubber in the Europa League against Real Sociedad in the second leg and Bruno Fernandes still played 45 minutes after the game against Crystal Palace. I texted Duncan and I said, how, how much football has Bruno Fernandes played? Uh, and he sort of, you know, he got out the spreadsheets and said Fernandes is top five for midfielders in Premier League minutes so far. He's played 2,290 minutes in the Premier League. Uh, He's played over 3,000 minutes in all competitions. That was his 40th game this season. United have played 42 games already. Paul Pogba's injured. Donny van der Beek's injured. Juan Mata's injured. Anthony Martial's injured. United, if you want to play a game of football without using Bruno Fernandes right now, United probably would have to play 4-4-2. You'd probably have to play Fred and Scott McTominay in the middle and then use Dan James on one flank, Marcus Rashford on the left, and go with Mason Greenwood and Anderson Cavani. I don't know if that would work at all outside the realms of FIFA and Football Manager. I wouldn't mind trying it for 10 minutes, just for Mm -hmm. a laugh. Lovely, Carl. It could work. Uh, United uh, certainly haven't had much success with any of their other approaches against big six oppositions. We've all heard the numbers. Only one goal against them so far this season. What do you think, Lindsay? You're anticipating goals for Man City. I don't, think, I don't think lots of goals for Man City, but I think that City will probably win this by one one goal, two goals. Um, but I just think that their defence, as we've seen with Stones and Diaz, and Stones was rested for the last match, so I, I imagine that he'll be coming back in. I, I really think that Zinchenko is underrated and, and what he brings. Um, I know a lot of people are fans of Cancelo, but I, I really think they're interchangeable and both do a brilliant job. So I, I think defensively, Manchester United are going to struggle to break City down. And I think if Pep even approaches this to to play a bit deeper... Um, I think the counter-attack's just a bit too brutal with with Raheem Sterling and the passing ability of De Bruyne, which we've seen again. I mean, he he took a few games to get going, but I think he's right up to speed. Duncan? 
I just want a nil-nil. <laughs> really. United are on six for the season. The record is nine. I think it's doable. So, mm. Game's about records and glory, isn't it? So. It certainly is. Up next, more from the midweek matches. Place your bets. Welcome to Pep Roulette. Ta, I'm feeling confident today, me. So your selection, sir? To start off from blue number nine and ten. Seventeen as well, just behind the front two. Good luck, sir. Blue number seven, unlucky, sir. Sterling, he started last week. Predicting Pep's lineups can be tricky these days. That's why we're giving you a risk-free £5 bet builder on Man City v Man United this Sunday. Money back as cash if it loses. Paddy Power. Pretty much online bets only. Minimum two legs. Max cash refund £5. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeGambleAware.org. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Wednesday saw a highly entertaining tussle at Turf Moor between Burnley and Leicester. Who who was watching this one? Yeah, I watched this one. Mm. Burnley opened the scoring through Vidra on an unintended assist from Leicester's uh, Chowdhury. Uh, Vidra scoring his first Premier League goal in over a year, but then uh, the Foxes equalising with a stunner from Ian Acho. Woof. Oh, Pop comes a long way. Oh, what a finish that is from Kelechi Iheanacho. Burnley opened up, but that was taken advantage of in some style. One of my favourite goals of the season so far, it's because the ball drops over his head and he just watches it onto his feet. And you just think that that's such a hard execution to pull off. And just knowing where the goal is, he hits it oh, it's so, so clean. Um, and indeed his pass, I mean, to set mm. that that up as well was incredible. Two brilliant goals in this match. Vidra's finish as well was exquisite, very composed. So, um, yeah, I think it was, it was what I expected. I thought this might end a draw because Leicester have been struggling Attacking-wise in particular, you know, no Madison, no Barnes now. It really shows up for for Brendan Rodgers that he has a problem and, and, and Vardy's not on it right now. So they're looking to other players. Um, we had Tielemans scoring a, in a game recently, Iniacho for this one. I, I think Brendan Rodgers is going to have to look for goals from elsewhere at the minute. Right, and problems at the back as well with that kind of makeshift back three. Kasper Schmeichel keeping the Clarets as Bay, who probably looked the strongest side in this actually, uh, Burnley, with a series of... Pretty remarkable saves, no? Yeah, two particularly big ones, didn't he? And he's got such a strong, strong single hand to tip round the post. I've seen him do that so many times. Um, but from close range as well, there, there was one of those efforts that you mm. just thought it was going in. There's no way he's keeping it out, but he managed to. So it really big Banks on performance it, yeah. from him. Yeah, mm. It's unlikely to happen, but I, I'd never want to arm wrestle Kasper Schmeichel. Um, <laughs> no. I mean, you know, if a charity wants to set that up, please do but I also find it confusing and also good when Vidra's on the score sheet because it it looks like an unlicensed version of Vardy in a computer game because <laughs> it's an anagram of Vardy isn't it so especially when they were playing Leicester I was like oh no it's, it's alright it's, it's Vidra so. mm. now the rival fixture on another channel was uh, at Bramall Lane Wednesday evening Sheffield United pulling off a 1-0 win over Aston Villa 
courtesy of David McGoldrick's first half strike, which sees the Blades pulling clear at last of Derby 0708 and onto the sunlit uplands of 14 points. This, despite playing the last uh, half an hour of the game with just 10 men after Phil Jagielka got his marching orders for denying Anwar Ghazi a, a goal scoring opportunity. He is, stat fans, the second oldest player ever to be sent off in Premier League history. But it should be chalked off because he shouldn't have been sent off. Should he not? Ooh. No. No, there was a recovery player able to get back. There is no way he should have been sent off, I don't think. Right. Well, the oldest player to be sent off in Premier League history, since you haven't asked, is 38-year-old Stuart Pearce mm. for West Ham. I say After he was a manager as well, which is always nice. Oh, really? Well, he was player manager for Forest for a bit before Euro 96, which I always quite like. Because obviously Keegan in his famous rant says, say that about a man like Stuart Pearce. And um, so he then went as a manager to be a player at Euro 96, which is quite nice. So. Hmm. Excellent. Uh, right, Villa hosts Wolves this weekend. Is that a derby, Lindsay? No. I suppose okay. it's a West Midlands derby, but it's not the derby. Right. Uh, also this week, Monday... It was Everton 1, Southampton 0, which is eight defeats in nine for Saints, but takes Everton to their highest points total at this stage of the season since 13-14 when they went on to finish fifth. By the time you hear this, or by Friday anyway, they could be top four, depending on what happens at West Brom this Thursday evening. As for Saints, they were top of the table in November. One point in nine games. Nine, do you say? The, The number nine? Yeah. Both of you Sorry, behave. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think Monday's game was a really interesting example of managers. One manager in Carl Angelotti being very good at steering into the skid and one manager in Ralph Hasenhall who cannot, and now the car seems to be <laughs> beginning to sort of roll over and end up in the trees. C- can I ask, on behalf of the, the, the tactically myopic, how do you steer into a skid? For example, what, what has Ancelotti done to kind of take his car safely through this icy bend? So the the most obvious sort of thing is sort of pressing numbers and how much your team is is trying to, to do sort of play higher up the pitch. So Everton right now aren't too preoccupied with aesthetics. I'm not going to say they're boring to watch, but they are more concerned with being effective. Now Ancelotti has always been a sort of, at his worst, people have called Carlo Ancelotti a clap your hands manager and at his best he's been, called a uh, sort of excellent man manager and very good at just looking at the talent he's got and right oh these are the best personnel i'll play this sort of fluid system um and he's used for charleston on monday sort of giving him that more sort of central area and saying you know play in the half left space that's where the first goal came from um, and actually you know he tends to use a 4-4-2 but he's experimenting two or three times and he's moved plays um from wing backs and he's used different systems and sometimes everton play square pegs around holes but Ancelotti's mostly gone, we can't play aggressive football in the way we want to. We're going to have to get better at our set pieces and our heading. The fact that we're not playing so high up the pitch actually protects my back four because Michael Keane's not the fastest man. Um, and that's how Everton have looked at it. He's gone, if we can't play 2019 football, we can play a good approximation of 2007 football. And lo and behold, they're doing quite well. And I think the, the managers that have realise you have to release the handbrake a little bit more or doing the best this season. One thing that's been really interesting about Manchester City is basically up until January, they didn't do that sort of pullback penalty area goal with the low cross that Manchester City are so well known for because Pep Guardiola went, this isn't this isn't working, it's too complicated, let me relax it. And it's only now that you're beginning to see them do that again. 
And that's why they're all scary. Whereas Ralph Arsenal came from RB Leipzig. So it's no surprise he's trying to play a form of football where everyone looks like they've drank two or three energy drinks. So they're still trying to play this high-pressing football. They're still trying to get up the pitch. They're still trying to play with a comparatively high line. You just can't do that in this season. You cannot do that when most teams have been playing every three games. He said after the defeat that while he understands there are some bad habits, um, he hasn't had time to coach them out of his players because there's just not enough time on the training pitch anymore. And Raf Hassel is one who's very much obsessed with the micro details and whatnot. So they, they do have injury problems, but I think he is too married to a, and I don't want to call it ambitious form of football, but a form of football that you can, I don't think you can thrive doing that form of football when everyone is absolutely knackered. What Ancelotti's done very well as well is he's leaned on different players at different points in the season. So it was all Dominic Calvert-Lewin at the beginning for providing goals. Then we had Hammers stepping up, providing lots of assists and also scoring some goals. And now it's Richarlison. He's scored in the last three league games. And I read an, an interview that Ancelotti did with the Liverpool Echo, where he said that Richarlison is going to stay put for another season because there were there were rumours that if they didn't get Champions League football, he might go. But he said even if they fail to qualify for the Champions League, Richarlison's going to stay. And I imagine if you're an Everton fan, that is the best news because this is a player, and I think Ancelotti, Ancelotti's also hinted towards it he can be one of the best in Europe I think um he's still young and Ancelotti's starting to bring out the the bits in him that I think Silver um at Watford tried to for a while and then when he went to Everton brought him a long try but didn't really I I think right now he could be one of the form players between now and the end of the season if he stays fit as for Saints who visit Sheffield United on Saturday there's still seven points from trouble if they lose this game, would it be realistic to describe them as in the relegation battle? I think so. I think they need to... See, the problem with both of these sides, both Southampton and Sheffield United, is they ha- they don't really have a plan B. They both play a very specialised and unique form of football that I don't think you really see in any other team across the Premier League, which, when it works, it works. And you saw Sheffield United last season, overlapping centre-backs was looking very, very good. And, you know, in November, what Southampton were doing, you know, they they essentially play football by throwing some a ball in your face and then when you're so obsessed with that, they bop you on the nose. That's all high-pressing. Have the ball. We've won the ball. Now we've scored. Um, but when you're tired and you have injuries and you don't have the unique personnel to make that system work, you cannot revert back to a 4-4-2 or, or the 4-2-3-1. And I think that's why both of those teams are having their, their slip. Yeah. At this point in March as well, when you've got two teams like Southampton and Newcastle where the wheels have come off and they're spiralling and you look below you in the table and you see that the likes of Fulham and West Brom are getting... Their, their form's changing, isn't it? They're trying to get more. It, it would worry me. It would worry me. I think they'll be fine, but it would worry me for the, for the rest of the campaign. For me, we've got to ask questions about stripes. If you look at the league table, Sheffield United <laughs> bottom, stripes, Southampton struggling, playing stripes, Newcastle spiralling, as Lindsay said, stripes. Uh, Man, West Man United stri- in zebra stripes as well. Well, exactly, yeah. I mean, <laughs> no team has won the league in stripes since Sunderland in 1936. Um, Duncan, Newcastle- did you know that today is the anniversary of mm. the March the 4th in 1933, when Herbert Chapman, football visionary, decided to alter Arsenal's kit to improve their performances, introducing the white sleeves. 
as a but means of making teammates more not stripes but it does lead into this this question of you know what shirt design color whatever is the most effective uh, Chapman probably did it to sell more third kits to you know the, the mill workers and their clogs and stuff but <laughs> yeah there were a lot of bruised bananas in the 1930s I also think that there's a silent fan around the world that secretly, especially reporters as well, who are secretly cheering on the plain strips. Right. We don't like stripes. It's not good for numbers <laughs> on the back of the shirts. That is true. That is true. So um, we, we silently cheer on the plain clothes. But then you look at Italy yes. and stripes dominate. They're the, they're the kings of the league. So I don't know. Right. Okay. But yeah. So maybe Sheffield United and Southampton should just get together on at the weekend and just decide to, to ditch stripes. Whatever you put in your coffee this morning, I want some. <laughs> All right. Well, they're not the only team down that way in some trouble. And if Saints are worried at seven from the bottom three, how much more concerned must Brighton be, who are four points worse off? Well, let's ask, actually, Andy Naylor, who's Brighton correspondent for The Athletic, next. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. By the way, uh, March the 4th on this day, fans, if you were thinking, yeah, that sounds familiar, but it wasn't the shirts I was thinking of. March the 4th in 1995 was the day of the first ever (laughs) 9-0 in Premier League history. This was before Saints had ruined the brand by making them incredibly commonplace. Do you want all (laughs) the Saints fans to turn off? No, but this was... I mean... These are facts, as Duncan would say. This was United winning 9-0 against Ipswich. Ince is in there. Here's Cole with his back to goal. It didn't make any difference. It's United ninth. It's Cole's fifth. It's an absolute rout. Carl, you're you're too young to remember this, but uh, Andy Cole, who had only just signed for United, scored five goals in this game. Uh, anyway, Brighton, uh, three points from the drop, fresh from a nightmarish diptych of body blows to their morale. There was the last-minute robbery by Palace and then the absurd game at West Brom. They now face a visit to a ground full of bad memories for them, their own, where they'll be facing Leicester this weekend. Uh, Andy Naylor, Brighton correspondent for The Athletic, will be there, and he joins us now. Andy. Good morning to you. How are you? Uh, yeah, very well, thank you. Uh, quite the week or two for Brighton. Uh, farce at the Hawthorns, the Benteke goal against Palace. Which hurt more? 
Well, the Palace one hurts a lot, of course, because they've traditionally been the local rivals for Brighton. And the manner of that defeat, I mean, they, they should have been out of sight. And for, for Benteke to nick that goal right at the end. And the manner of the finish, indeed. It was such a good finish, wasn't it? As indeed Palace's first goal was. So that was pretty sickening. And for then to be immediately followed by the events at West Brom and the free kick fiasco and missing two penalties, not to mention countless other chances as well. It was a, a double hit uh, in a successive games, really. All right. And it's made the situation look pretty bleak down at the bottom. Only three points from the drop. Crazy to think that only a month ago, Seagulls were celebrating a victory over the champions, Liverpool, in brackets. Uh, but now, to use your phrase, they are gold medalists in finding ways not to win. Turns out goals are not overrated, Andy. <laughs> well, they are. It's been an incredible season in that respect. Obviously, it's a unique season because of the circumstances and the, the condensed fixtures. But it's the narrative has been relentless with Brighton. They, they've produced so many good performances. You can count on less than one hand the poor performances they've had. And yet they just can't do that final bit, which is the most important bit, of course, sticking the ball in, in the net. And, and most people will say the hardest bit as well. So that's what's been holding them back. But um, you're right. I, I looked back at after they won at Anfield, they were 10 points clear. And bear in mind that that came during a six-match unbeaten run in which they'd also beaten Leeds away 1-0, really good performance and result, beat Spurs 1-0 at home. So it looked to all intents and purposes at that stage that um, they were pretty much clear. But we should know better than that with Brighton because it's a roller coaster ride season after season. Duncan, you have, I think, some numbers to illustrate the extremes of... of, of ineffectiveness in front of goal that, that Brighton are currently essaying. Yeah, I mean, obviously we need to thank Brighton and Graham Potter for for proving XG as a viable concept. But I had a look, actually. If you, obviously, you can underperform your XG going forward, so scoring less than you should, and you can concede more than you should at the back. Which I, Brighton are doing both. They're not just wasting good chances. They're coming up against opposition, like Andy just said, against Palace, who are you know finishing really difficult chances. So it's like a double whammy. So I combine those two things into one figure, essentially. So underperformance at, at both ends. And per game, Brighton are 0.72 per match, uh, minus 0.72, which is essentially as a rating of luck, is really, really bad. And no team in, in recorded Premier League history has been as bad as that. Um, you know, the only teams that are closer, maybe Aston Villa in 2015-16, got relegated. Huddersfield, a couple of seasons ago, got relegated. Possibly the nearest um, fair example, comparison, is Liverpool in 2011-12. Remember the season when Dalglish was, was manager? And they, they were pretty creative going forward, but just couldn't win games and couldn't score goals and it's a similar sort of thing with Brighton at the moment um you know and maybe it will change um it should change based on the law of averages but as each week goes by uh, it doesn't seem to one goal from 66 shots uh, that must be something of a record as well yeah absolutely i mean they're just you know obviously there are limits to to something like xg in the sense that you can have a lot of shots and get an XG figure from a long range or a couple of really good chances from from close in. And I think Brighton are possibly shooting a little bit from distance too much. And, you know, but you can understand that because, you know, they're playing well, they're dominating games and they're not getting results. And, and when that happens and the spectre of relegation is looming, 
you know, players are going to start to to panic a little bit. And is that what's happening? Well, I think there was a good example of that at West Brom. If I look back at that game and some of the chances, I'm thinking particularly of one that Aaron Connolly had in the second half and Neil Mope also had in the first half. And they were chances that they tended to snatch at. And I think, you know, they're human, aren't they? They know the situation. They know everybody is saying at Brighton that this is the issue with Brighton. So, um, yeah, that, that bit of confidence when those chances come along, I think, is, is playing a part, definitely. So, Andy, who do you expect to be the designated penalty taker? Ah, that's, yeah, that, and that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because um, um, I, I must admit, I was quite surprised that Danny Welbeck took the second one. I think I can understand why Pascal Gross wouldn't have wanted to take the second one, having missed the first, to have the second in the same game, I kind of get. But Pascal Gross has actually got a very good record. I was I was very confident when he stepped up that he'd score. I think I'm right in saying he scored with seven of his eight penalties before that. So he's technically good, Pascal. I was really surprised, like I say, to see him hit the first one against the crossbar. So I would... I would still stick with him, assuming he's in the starting lineup, of course. Andy, how damaging could the club not actually signing a striker prove? Very damaging if, if ultimately they get relegated. Um, but but I is, think we... is that the biggest issue? Do you think the fact that they didn't, given that this this issue of not scoring has been there kind of all season, that they really yeah. needed to bring somebody in? Well, I, th- I think the thing is with Brighton with. You've got to put it into context with the club and the stage of development that it's at. They only entered the Premier League in 2017-18. And historically, they were playing catch-up because they've been as recently as 2010-11 playing in a converted athletic stadium with Dean in League One. So they were playing catch-up from the point of view of what they could afford to pay players wages and also transfer fees. And they're still really in that situation. They haven't got uh, the ability to spend the sorts of money that quite a few clubs in the Premier League, not just the big clubs, but some of the other clubs you you might be expecting them to be sort of competing against. I'll give you one a good good example. Last season, there was a lot of talk about Ollie Watkins. Oh, you know, and Brighton should go after Ollie Watkins. There was no way they could afford the combination of transfer fee and wages that Aston Villa are paying Ollie Watkins. So that means you've got to be smart with your recruitment, uh, as smart as you can be. And generally speaking, if you look at Brighton's recruitment, they've done very well. They've done some great bits of business. I mean, Tarek Lamptey for, you know, that that's less than a three million pound package for Tarek Lamptey. And you can probably already put a naught on his value. Um, it's at the sharp end, it's the strikers. They're the ones that are most difficult to find. It's, it's very easy to say, Brighton need a striker, a finisher. Where, where do you find that finisher who's going to guarantee you goals at Premier League level for the sort of money that they can afford? There was a man, Andy, called Glenn Murray who's gone to Forest. Yeah. <laughs> yes. He seems yeah. to do pretty well for Brighton in front of goal. Yeah, he did. Yes, you're right. I mean, if you look at the first... Two seasons under Chris Hutton, he was top scorer with 12 and 13. But I think I think Glenn accepted as well. Graham Potter has changed the way Brighton play, the style of play. 
and Glenn didn't really fit that profile. Um, they're effectively after a younger, more mobile version of Glenn. That's really what Brighton need. Um, because uh, that would provide them with something a bit different to what they already have. So um, it's very easy, I think, with hindsight to say, well, why, why did they, you know, why didn't they stick with Glenn Murray? Um, yes, there's an argument, perhaps, that Glenn Murray would have taken a higher percentage of the chances they create. But then you're perhaps ignoring other areas of the game, you know, the work that Neil Mope does in other areas of the pitch, apart from uh, in the opposing penalty area. I mean, as Andy says, it's really hard to find those players. If you if you think about similarly promoted teams who are quite progressive, um, like Swansea, when they came up, uh, were like that. But they kind of lucked out because they got Michu for famously two million, and he turned into a goal machine. and And it is it is very hard for clubs the size of Brighton and Swansea to to find those players and and to to get them scoring in the Premier League. Um, and it will be a, a massive shame if it doesn't work out this season because you know. Brighton have been entertaining. It's very difficult, isn't it? You you could look at someone like uh, Ivan Tony at, at Brentford. Brentford have been there's been a production line, is it? That Brighton signed Mope from Brentford. Then it was Ollie Watkins. Now you've got Ivan Tony. He looks the stamp of the kind of player that would be really really good for Brighton. But because of that, Andy, you're going to get the inflated cast, and you're probably Absolutely. going to be in exactly the same situation you Absolutely. were in with Watkins. And yeah. also, yeah, exactly, you're going to have a lot of competition. I mean, I think if you were asking me now, I think Ivan Tony will probably have. Um, assuming, of course, this is you know he might stay with Brentford if they go up, but um, he might have uh, better and bigger offers than Brighton could uh, make for him. And that sound and distance is Newcastle fans upset that they obviously had Tony and, and let him go. So. <laughs> well, Newcastle, who are perhaps the best news for uh, Brighton right now because uh, they're down there level on points with you, but in a really difficult situation as well. How concerned, Andy, realistically are you that that this, this three-point margin is going to evaporate like the seven points has done in the last month or so? You've got to be concerned, I think, um, because as you say it's it's come down that quickly um i'm still quietly confident that because of the performance levels because they do keep creating i'd be more concerned you know if they were going to west brom a fairly flat performance hadn't really created much and lost one nil they should have won they should have won the game comfortably and of course it's a concern that they're not taking those chances but they are making those chances the performance level is still generally good and uh, I, I would kind of like to retain the belief that over the course of the rest of the season, if you keep on doing that, that you might get more chance of the results like they got against Leeds, against Spurs, against Liverpool. I think with Brighton, the type of side they are, the first goal is really important. Um, I've just A mentioned goal. those. The, uh, well, I've just mentioned those three clubs, and you know. Hmm. None of them then, once Brighton were 1-0 up, none of them were able to score against them. Um, when they're chasing a game, particularly against the sides around them, because they're the sides they've really struggled against, the teams that sit in and sit back, then they find they find it difficult. So um, that's the other aspect of their running. I'm not too concerned about the fact that on paper, they've got a difficult running. If you look at, the, I mean, they start Leicester at home Saturday and they've still got a lot of the top sides. In normal circumstances, you look at that and think, crikey, they're in real trouble. 
It might turn out that way, but if you actually look, their results have been better this season against the better teams than those around them. Andy, uh, enjoy your trip to the Amex this weekend to see the clash with Leicester. Thank you. Not at all. Thank you for being with us today. Andy Naylor, you can read his report on what happens against Leicester, an opponent who Brighton haven't beaten in any of their seven Premier League meetings and who indeed knocked the Seagulls out of the FA Cup a few weeks ago. Uh, Anyway, you can read his report on what happens this time in The Athletic or on theathletic.com. Oh, I mentioned Newcastle in a similar predicament with injuries piling up and they are going to be at West Brom where Brighton had such a miserable time. Uh, Lindsay, you're going to be there as well, not having a miserable time. No, I I will be enjoying it. Um, it's an early kickoff. I like those ones. You get back quite early in the afternoon afterwards. Huge game, isn't it, this one? I, I think West Brom, after the bizarre goings on that we've already discussed, I think they'll take a bit of a, a bounce from that. And I think Newcastle, with, with the injuries, I think it's a, a bigger task for them to try and get something out of this match. Can I... What is Steve Bruce doing to football players? <laughs> uh, not in a, I mean, tactical sense, but also a, a lot of football players get injured when Steve Bruce is the manager. This is yet another Have we got injury. got up to stats for this? Yeah, an XI or something. This is yet another injury for Alan San Maximan. And I remember last season uh, after watching Newcastle beat Southampton in early December, Steve Bruce admitted that he played Alan San Maximan when it was maybe 60%. And the question was, why did you play him? And he said, well, Alan San Maximan is such a bright and bubbly boy. You try telling him that he can't play football. <laughs> to which, I mean, that's f- fine if you're a youth coach. But uh, as a coach of a professional Premier League football team was slightly concerning. And there, there does seem to be a constant repetition of players not quite being fully fit, coming back quickly, getting injured again. And again and again on the Steve Bruce. And it is mildly, it seems to track not only from Newcastle, but going back further to Sheffield Wednesday and other teams in his career. Just, is Steve Bruce, are they sword fighting? And it's it's the combination of players that are out at the same time. Like here with St. Maximan and Almiron mm. both being out. They lose so and much Callum Wilson. pace. Callum mm-hmm. Wilson. I think the combos of players that they've had out at certain times this season has been brutal. Also, apparently the dressing room is now in full revolt as well because Steve Bruce apparently blamed Matt Ritchie for the for the Wolves goal um, and then Matt Ritchie demanded to speak to him. Bruce kind of avoided the issue and Matt Ritchie's called him a coward, which apparently is infu- a bit like Marty McFly hated being called a chicken. Steve Bruce hates being called a coward. La- last- so apparently, the yeah. No, I was just going to say last time we aired unsubstantiated rumours about... Newcastle, of course, on this podcast, yes. uh, somebody had to make an apology. But you're confident about this, so you don't care. Well, this has been in most of the newspapers this morning. All right. So, okay. uh, yeah. West Brom, nine points, surely too much? Just about. There was a phase where West Brom were looking like historically one of the worst teams in Premier League history. I remember talking to Duncan about this, about how it was basically Sheffield United having a terrible start that protected how badly West Brom were. It might be too late. I'm, I'm not sure yeah. this is going to be a fun game to watch, but also I, I'm going to watch because I'm curious to see what happens when most footballing sense gets thrown out the window. You might enjoy Fulham against Liverpool then as well. 
Fulham have only won once at Anfield in their entire history. It was a Martin Skirtalone goal, which secured a victory for Martin Yole's cottagers over that aforementioned Kenny Daglish side. Actually, you know what? We've mentioned Sir Kenny twice now in today's show. It's probably a good idea to mention it a third time and say many happy returns to King Kenny because he turns 70 today, March the 4th. What a lovely chap he is too. Now, oh, yes, uh, Fulham though. Lindsay, you want to make a bold tactical prediction about their chances at Anfield? Well, I've I've been looking into Fulham quite a bit. I was at the game uh, against Palace. Um, I'm also at the game against Spurs, which is just after we've recorded this. And looking at the options now that Scott Parker has, we all know that he loves to play this possession-based football and it has been working pretty well. But what I think has really helped is Joachim Anderson providing this other option. He is this outlet for long balls. He's shown it in his past as well when he was playing for Sampdoria 2018-19 in Italy. He was second behind one only one other player in terms of the accuracy of his long balls. And I think... Duncan, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that he has the most long passes attempts in the Premier League across 90 minutes at the moment. So Joachim Anderson, with that and being able to play this sort of quarterback role, your likes of Luckman, they're really looking like a threat with a couple of options now. They didn't used to have that backup plan. And I think that Scott Parker is doing wonders with this Fulham team because not only just shoring them up defensively, If they do want to play this counter-attack, they've now got that outlet. So um, I I think that Liverpool should be a little bit wary of Fulham, as should Spurs. I mean, we're recording this before the Spurs match, but I I think that they will use that option. From a Liverpool perspective, Chris G82 writes in, he says, as a Liverpool fan, now just desperately hoping for top four, who is the team most likely to slip up and vacate a space for Liverpool to sneak their way in, should they beat the likes of Fulham? Well... As it stands, Liverpool are lying sixth. They are two points behind West Ham in fourth. Leicester are seven points ahead of them in third place. And then Man United, their old friends, are a whopping eight points clear. But, you know. It's very hard to to discuss when we don't know how Liverpool-Chelsea this evening is going to go. I mean, that shows how big a game that is. I mean, I would back, I think, Chelsea and Liverpool to come third and fourth um blimey but yeah i think i think liverpool will improve as players come back and chelsea the defense is so solid now that they're going to get the results to to come in sort of i think I, I think west ham will sadly miss out which will be sad i would love to see west ham in the champions league and it feels like leicester are doing their their fading um you know as daniel said on monday's pod you know just the squad isn't quite big enough to to cover the the rigours of a particular season like this one. So, yeah, I I still think Chelsea and Liverpool are probably the favourites to to come in the top four. But, you know, the the game tonight will will show us whether that's a realistic shout. Right, well, uh, Chelsea-Liverpool coming up this evening. And then at the weekend, you've got a couple of other games. Well, Sheffield United against Saints, we mentioned that. Burnley uh, are up against Arsenal. Says here they haven't won a league game against the Gunners at Turf Moor since 1973. Crikey, that's a very long time. They did win though against Arsenal at the Emirates back in December. Hmm. It's the tough place to go, fallacy, once more, <laughs> isn't it? Burnley you at home to big, big six teams. Yeah. Um, this game also in 2016, Burnley conceded two fouls at home to Arsenal, which again doesn't fit in with the with the usual narrative. So that was the fa- famous game that Arsenal fans couldn't get to because of cows on the line. 
Do you, do you mm. remember that? Um, cattle on the line. Uh, Aston Villa will be taking on Wolves, and Lindsay, as we mentioned, you're going to be there. It's not a derby. No. I will be keeping a, a close eye on Bertrand Traore for Villa. I thought that he was really good. I know that they lost against Sheffield United, but did you see that one moment yeah. where his clever feet in the box, there were at one point I counted six Sheffield United defenders around him. And with the Wolves defence at the moment, that really worries me that he can produce that. Um, I, I thought that he is an outlet for Villa without Grealish in the side. Um, and I think Barkley might might start this one because he came on, didn't he, towards the end for Sheffield uh, in the Sheffield United match. Um, so maybe he'll start this. Um, yeah, I think it should be quite a tight game. Finally then, Spurs Crystal Palace, which will be Sunday at 7.15. What do you think? Palace, can they do it to Spurs the way they did it to United and Brighton and so many other opponents? Possibly. There is something quite interesting about the glimmers of uh, Gareth Bale that seem to be coming forward. Um, if Again, this could, be, this could be Jose Mourinho deciding he wants to steer into the skid and go, oh, I've got other attacking players outside of Harry Kane and Son. Um, and if, if Bale can find the glimmers of 2013 Gareth Bale that could be quite interesting this Crystal Palace team is they're really interesting in that quietly quite I don't know if they're bad but they're not really doing football I'm not I'm, can you play can you have your you know flip-flops on the beach in March in in a lockdown as well to what extent Carl is this a bid by you to get steering into the skid as this week's episode <laughs> title uh, I mean you've caught me red-handed Okay. Okay then. All right. Well, uh, unless anybody else wants to throw in any comments on those games, they will be, of course, reviewed in full and forensic detail in Monday's show. Uh, then let's get some odds from Lee Price from Paddy Power and then come back uh, with one or two other bits of midweek information. Hello, listeners. Before I start, I just wanted to confirm that this segment is indeed available as an NFT now. And of course I know what that means. I've known for days. Or oh, I will have by the time you've heard this. Hmm. King Leon. I've been called worse. Anyway, that's a few seconds killed without having to read numbers out. Incredible scenes from Mars this week. I don't mean NASA's live footage from the Red Planet, but their staff watching the red half of Sheffield actually winning a game of football. Sadly, it's still 1-80 to 80 that Sheffield United get relegated. Fulham have a better shot of surviving, although their odds on at 10-11 to 11 to go down but could do win some games themselves. They're 14-5 to to beat Tottenham. Spurs, frankly, aren't to be trusted and never have been, but they did look good last time out. They're 19-20 to to win. West Brom are also all but relegated. They're 1-25 to to go down, and they're 3-1 to to beat Everton, who are the peculiar price of 20-23 to to win. See, this is why I waffle about NFTs and NASA and other newsworthy acronyms, guys. The numbers can be mad sometimes. Anyway... There's also a game of football on this week which might actually fill me with an emotion other than deja vu. Liverpool versus Chelsea in the battle for the least biggest balls up of a season. Liverpool are 6-5 to win that clash. Chelsea less fancied at 21-10. And the draw, which always calls my uncertain nature like the secret siren to Elsa in Frozen 2, is 12-5. Ta-ra! You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. You can sign up for a subscription with The Athletic 
everybody, for unrivaled coverage on the business end of the season. All the articles, all the podcasts ad-free and Q&As with writers like our friend Carl Anker here. And you can get all of that for just £4 a month. Crikey. Make use of this exceptional offer by heading to theathletic.com slash totally. Now, we spoke on Monday about the possibility of England hosting the Euros, uh, but they're not going to. The FA's ruled that out ruthlessly on Wednesday. Uh, also on Wednesday, Barcelona ruthlessly rolled past Sevilla with a late goal from Martin Braithwaite uh, to take themselves through to the Copa del Rey final. Uh, let's see. Midweek also, Stephen Gerrard sent off at halftime in Rangers' trip to Livingston, but Rangers got the win and they could be crowned champions this weekend if they beat St Mirren and Celtic drop points at Dundee United. Crikey. Also this midweek was uh, Champions League last 16, Women's Champions League, Lindsay, which saw some pretty good results for the English uh, women's teams. Yeah, Man City and Chelsea both going very strong in Europe. We know that Emma Hayes has targeted trying to get that Champions League trophy in her locker. I think that's probably her main priority for this season. But Manchester City under Gareth Taylor have been going very well recently in WSL. They took that form into the match this week, uh, midweek in Champions League, beating Fiorentina. Fiorentina, a very good side in Syria. They, they'd they had a really good run up until the weekend, just before this match, where they, they'd lost for the first time in quite a long time. Um, and then Atletico against Chelsea, that was the first meeting between those two. Chelsea um, coming away with that advantage, both though, English sides at home. They have got the return leg that they've got to do uh, next week. Even with my limited understanding... Uh, Lindsay, I know that the team to beat uh, tend to be Leon. Yeah, five Champions League titles in a row. Woof. Wow, wow, mm. yeah. But I, that that crown will be toppled at some point. And I imagine if you look at squad depth, if you look at the teams around Europe, Chelsea are the best equipped to do it. For anyone interested in more on that, we'll be covering it. We'll also be reacting to WSL um, action this weekend. And we're out every single Tuesday, the Offside Rule WSL edition. I look forward to it, Lindsay. Nice one. Very good. That, though, wraps it up for this edition of the Totally Football Show. As I mentioned, this Monday we'll be back to review what happens this weekend. And then looking forward to the Men's Champions League last 16 second legs, which will be happening next midweek. Do join us for that. Uh, for now, many thanks, Lindsay and Carl and Duncan and earlier on, Andy Naylor and you, listener. Have a great weekend and we'll catch up with you after. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. 
Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.